I'm very mindful as I come to speak under the title Planned, that all, not all things are planned. <laughs> and um, another thing unplanned, I think, was to have such a um, lovely group of women for me to be serving alongside on International Women's Day, um, World Women's Day, is that right? Um, so it's lovely to be with Monica and Jenny and later Fran and to see all these amazing women in the congregation who enrich our lives so much. So recently we've been looking at the story of Nehemiah and we're going to leave behind us for a little while Nehemiah and his great building project, even though our building project is still in the hands of the planners and um, I guess we have to trust that even though it's with local planners, it is in the hands of God who must surely be the great planner. But as a, as a church now, we're now moving towards um, Easter and our new series is The Way of the Cross. And we're thinking about um, today how the cross was planned And as Jenny said, this is an amazing chapter, and we could have a whole series unpacking the richness of it. This man, Nicodemus, who came at night to speak to Jesus. But actually, our focus is going to be a little tiny verse, verse 14, that we so often skip over to get to its more famous um, neighboring verses. And it's that image of Moses lifting up a snake on a stick in the wilderness. It's very strange, isn't it, that something that was meant to bring death and poison was meant to bring hope and courage. And my prayer today is that as a congregation, we explore this strange little story, this strange little verse. We too will leave here with renewed courage and hope and an understanding of the life that God wants for us. I've heard that the best sermons have three points. This isn't the best sermon, because I've only got two points. The The first half is this idea of being planned, and the second half we're going to look at this idea of the snake on the stick. Now, I remember that when I was young, I think I might have been in a school assembly or something, someone came and told me they were going to summarize the Bible. And so it went a bit like this. They said, in the beginning, God made a beautiful world and he put Adam and Eve in the garden. But they couldn't stick to his rules of not eating from the the wrong tree. So they broke his rules. So they had to leave the garden. And so a bit later... God sent Moses to give them some new rules to live by, but the people broke the rules. So the next thing was that God sent some prophets to remind the people of the rules, but the people didn't listen to the prophets. So then God thought, I'll send Jesus. Jesus will show them how to live. But then the people killed Jesus. And so in the end, God sent his spirit to live in the people, and they all lived happily ever after. Well, that didn't quite happen, did it? Unfortunately, we don't all live happily ever after. And um, actually, I think that gives a completely wrong view of the Bible and God. It, it makes God seem sort of some sort of hapless, 
planner lurching from one failed plan to another. That's not how it is. It wasn't that Jesus was a new plan, the next attempt, the latest ploy. He was the plan from the very beginning. And I know, looking out, many of you know your Old Testament very, very well. And we can see pictures and images and promises and prophecies of Jesus all the way through the Old Testament. I know that a lot of you here love your music, and um, a favorite is Handel's Messiah, all about Jesus, all about the Messiah. And yet, most of the words, all taken from the Bible, come from the Old Testament, not from the New Testament. There's a very beautiful children's storybook called um, The Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones, and the strapline of the book is Every Story whispers his name. All through the Old Testament, there's a whisper of Jesus' name to come, a little bit like a golden thread running through the whole Bible. And so by the time we get to the New Testament, the gospel writers and Paul in particular are evidencing that Jesus was the Messiah by looking backwards to the prophecies made about him. And even Jesus himself, if you remember on the road to Emmaus, turns to those two disciples and says, How foolish you are, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... Jesus explained to him what was said in the Old Testament scriptures concerning himself. There's a lovely couplet that I really like that says this. The new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. Jesus was the plan right from the beginning. And why was he sent? He was sent to bring life, as is very clear from that John 3 reading. In preparing for this morning, I've been enjoying reading some really old sermons written by some of the old Victorian preachers, Spurgeon and Alexander McLaren. And McLaren writes this about the life that Jesus brought. I wish I had a rumbling Scottish accent to do justice to his words, but I don't. He said this. Eternal life, do not bring that down to the narrow and inadequate conception of unending existence. It involves that, but it means a great deal more. It means a life of such a sort as is worth calling life, which is a life in union with God and therefore full of blessedness, full of purity, full of satisfaction, full of desire and aspiration, and all these with a stamp of unendingness deeply impressed upon them. Jesus came to bring us this life. That was the plan from the beginning. And that is the end of part one. (laughs) So now, 
of all those verses, I've heard there's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that point the way forward to Jesus. Why did he choose this one little funny image of a snake on a stick in this most glorious chapter, John chapter 3, when he's talking about himself and his mission in the world? What was this snake held up on a stick all about? So I think what we have to do is we have to leave Nicodemus and Jesus in that dark room in Jerusalem. And we have to have rewind a few hundred years to find the Israelites. Moses had brought them out of a life of slavery in Egypt. And they were living their wilderness years in the desert. And in Numbers 21, we find this story. The Israelites had been rescued from this life of slavery and suffering, but they were in the wilderness, they were in the desert, and once again they were tired and fed up, they were impatient, and they were angry with God and with Moses. And this is their common refrain Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread. There's no water, and we detest this miserable food, this miraculous manna that clearly didn't taste very nice, but that God gave them every day so that they wouldn't starve. And so, what did God do when he heard their complaint? Very strangely, he sent fiery serpents or poisonous snakes that bit the people, and many died. And so the people went back to Moses and said, we need to be saved, save us. And in response, God told Moses to put a snake on his staff so that when people got bitten, they could look at the snake on the staff and they would be healed. What a strange thing to do. It sounds like the snake was to be some kind of lucky charm or a talisman. That doesn't sound very godlike. And why a snake on a stick? Why not put a dove or an olive branch, some kind of sign of hope, something more positive? Why put on a snake that was an image of death? And perhaps right back from the beginning of the story was an image of deception and sin. How could looking at that bring about health and healing and life for the people? I've been thinking about this a lot. Maybe, maybe the snake is a distraction. Maybe we should be thinking about that stick, that staff of Moses. Not too long before, that same staff had struck the side of the rock and the people received water. Before that, that staff had been raised over the seas and they had parted and the people had passed through. Before that, that staff had been reached out over the Nile and it turned to blood to persuade Pharaoh to let the people go. Before that, that staff had been thrown on the floor. It changed into a snake, of all things, and then changed back into a staff again. Aaron, God's uh, Moses' helper, too had had a staff. And in another very strange story, had overnight... um, had shoots and blossomed and then fruited with almonds. And that was a sign that Aaron was to take care of the people 
and to stop them from grumbling. But in the previous chapter, Aaron had died and the people were grumbling again. I think this was more than a snake on a stick. Moses' raised staff was a reminder of God's care. He'd brought them through so much. It was a symbol of his power and his authority and his strength and his faithfulness to those people. He had provided and guided them and rescued them thus far. And the people simply had to raise their eyes from the snakes around them and put their trust in him once again. Interestingly, God didn't take the snakes away, but he did give them a means to be saved. And it's this strange image that Jesus takes for himself, that in the same way that Moses lifted up this snake in the desert, Jesus the Son of God, must also be lifted up. I found this lovely little paragraph. The lesson of the serpent rod of Moses blossoms into the promise that is the cross of Christ. The cross, the cross in and of itself, was a symbol of the oppressive and deadly power of the Roman Empire. However, through God's mercy, the cross also became the tree of life that all who look upon it may be saved by God. There's a message for us here too about looking up. Nicodemus came to Jesus and addressed him as teacher, but this is more than a matter of good teaching. This is a matter of life and death. There's something very beautiful about someone who, for the first time in their life, turns to Jesus and finds a new life in him. But these Israelites weren't discovering God for the first time. They'd experienced a lot with God. They'd seen his hand work miraculously so many times, and yet they had become disappointed perhaps isolated, perhaps rejected. And isn't that our experience too, if we're honest? Between us here, we have so many stories of God's hand on our lives, but it's so easy for us too to reach points where we feel disappointed, rejected, isolated. Our hearts can become a little hard. And that's the time for us, too, to raise our eyes, to look up. God didn't take away the snakes, and God doesn't make life smooth and easy for us. But he does give us a saviour, and he does give us the promise of fullness of life. And what does that look like? It's an easy thing to say, isn't it? What does it look like? What does it mean to raise our eyes? There's something intentional about that, isn't there? What is it that brings you back to remember the one who brings life and hope and courage and strength to you? 
opening the Bible, coming to church every Sunday, sharing communion. Perhaps you have a picture on your wall that draws you back to God. Perhaps a special Bible verse that you have stuck on the fridge door. These are all good things that draw us back, that encourage us to lift our eyes, to put our trust once again in God. He has brought us thus far, and he will take us on. So in concluding, our reading today started with Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night in the dark. And then we step back in time to think about the Israelites in their wilderness years. I wonder if you relate to that sense of being in the dark, a sense of unknowing, being in the wasteland, the desert. Have you got fiery serpents, poisonous snakes snapping at your heels? I think today Jesus wants you to know his light and his life and his hope again. It's an intentional thing to fix our eyes on Jesus again. A little earlier I read that little piece about what eternal life really means. McLaren continued, and I'm just going to finish by how he continued that little passage, and then I'm going to pray. So hear these words. Eternal life. Do not bring that down to the narrow and inadequate conception of unending existence. It involves that, but it means a great deal more. It means a life of such a sort that is worth calling life, which is a life in union with God. And therefore, it's full of blessedness, purity, satisfaction, desire, and aspiration, and all these with a stamp of unendingness deeply impressed upon them. And that is what comes to us through the look Not only is the process of dying arrested, but there is substituted for it a new process of growing possession of a new life. You must be born again, Christ had been saying to Nicodemus. The change that passes upon a man or a woman when he or she has anchored his trust on Jesus Christ, the uplifted son of man, is so profound that it's nothing else than a new birth. And new life comes into his veins, untainted by the poison and with no proclivity to death. What Jesus said to Nicodemus by night in that quiet chamber in Jerusalem, what he said in effect and act upon the cross when uplifted there, is what he says to each of us from the throne where he is now seated. Whosoever believeth shall in me have eternal life. Take him at his word, and you will find that it is true. Let's pray. Jesus, your word calls us to fix our eyes upon you. 
to consider you that we would not grow weary and lose heart. You promise that when we look to you and put our trust in you, we will find courage and hope. Lord, you know what we feel in the dark about. You know that sense of wilderness. And you know the fiery serpent snapping at our heels. Maybe failing health. Maybe anxiety over the virus maybe damaged relationships. Lord, we choose today to look to you. Lord, you have brought us thus far and we trust you to take us on, not merely existing, but living a full life with you, receiving your grace and sharing it with others. May this be our story and song, and we ask this in your glory. Amen.